Hello and welcome to Immuno Tea, the immunology podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Lara. And I'm Fianca. And this is the podcast where we tell you all about the most exciting research going on in the world of immunology. So grab yourself a cup of tea, sit down and relax, and we'll fill you in. Mm, that actually sounds delicious. I could do with the tea right now. But first, we are here to talk about immunology. So what research is being done, what new treatments we should be watching out for, and what's happening in the immunology labs and clinics all around the world. Each month, we will be interviewing two of the biggest names in immunology about cutting-edge research and innovation to bring you all the latest news and keep you up to date on the world of laboratory and clinical immunology. And if you want to get in contact with us here on the show, you can email us at immunotpodcast at gmail.com. That's immunotea, spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A for a big cup of tea, the immunotpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at immunotea. I'm really excited about this new podcast. Um, I'm Fianca. I'm a clinical immunology trainee, and I'm currently working as a research fellow in the Neuroimmunology Lab in Rochester, Minnesota. And I actually originally did a PhD in immunology, but that was over a decade ago. I'm now working as a medical doctor in clinical immunology in Dublin, in Ireland. So we've got a great show for you today. We're going to be chatting to Professor Kingston Mills all about interleukin-17 and how it's central to both protection from infectious disease and autoimmunity. And we're going to be chatting to Professor Anastasia Zakeridou all about checkpoint inhibitors and paraneoplastic neurological syndromes. It's going to be very exciting and we're here to spill the tea, if you will, in immunology. Oh gosh, I won't. No, we're not going to let you away with that one. <laughs> no, no, it is. It's really exciting. I guess maybe on that note, we probably should get started. I'd like to welcome our first guest of the podcast, Professor Kingston Mills. Kingston is Professor of Experimental Immunology at the School of Biochemistry and Immunology in Trinity College, Dublin. And Kingston is also the head of an active research team in Trinity, focusing on T-cells in infection and autoimmunity, and is the co-founder of a number of biotech companies focused on developing immunotherapeutics for inflammatory diseases and cancer. Not to mention maybe your greatest accolade, Kingston. Many moons ago, you were also my PhD supervisor. So, Kingston, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Laura. Fantastic. So look, I mean, we wanted to talk to you about your recent paper in Nature Reviews Immunology, and you were talking all about IL-17, a cytokine very close to my own heart from my PhD. Can you tell me just a little bit uh, of idea of what the, f the paper was about, a flavor of it, and maybe a flavor of what IL-17 is? I know that's a big question, but give it a go. Okay, so IL-17 is a cytokine, and cytokines are the, the messenger molecules of the immune system. So cell-to-cell -cell communication usually occurs by true cytokines. And IL-17 is an inflammatory cytokine. And it was originally discovered as being found in the brain of patients with multiple sclerosis. And they really didn't know why it was there. And that was, you know, more than 20 years ago. And then uh, the, the, the gene for the cytokine was cloned and, and the function of the cytokine was discovered that it was an inflammatory cytokine that, that mediated pathology in autoimmune diseases. And then the story took a bit of a twist, and it turned out that, that um, of course, cytokines are not there to cause disease. We, the host would, you know, normally would produce cytokines to protect itself. 
um, for example, against infection. And, and indeed, that's the case. IL-17 is critical in protecting against fungal, bacterial infections, and it may even have a role in parasitic and um, viral infections, although the, the, the evidence is more clear for fungal and bacterial. So it's both a protective cytokine and it's a damaging cytokine. And that's what makes it so interesting. And that was the, the basis of the review article that I um, wrote for Nature Reviews Immunology a, a few months ago. It was truly trying to make sense out of the fact that it was both protective and damaging and how that could happen, that, that the same molecule could have dual functions. That's really interesting. Thanks, Kingston. I love that in your paper, you called IL-17 a double-edged sword. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the pathological aspects of it and its role in autoimmunity? Well, I mean, I suppose the best evidence to have the pathological role of IL-17 is that it's now probably the hottest drug target in treating autoimmune diseases today. So there are, you know, about four or five um, therapies that specifically target IL-17 or the cytokine upstream of IL-17 called IL-23. So antibodies that block the function of these cytokines or the receptors are now in use for treating patients with psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, alkalosing spondylitis, and there's a range of other um, diseases where there's potential for blocking these cytokines in terms of, of new treatments. For example, in multiple cirrhosis, an area that, that my lab works on, we um, have very strong evidence that uh, from animal models that IL-17 is important. And indeed, there was a phase one, phase two clinical trial carried out a few years back in MS patients to show that the antibody against IL-17A was pretty effective at stopping relapse. But that hadn't, hasn't progressed into phase two, phase three trials yet. And, uh, you know, there is some controversy about this in that some people believe that IL-17 is not the be-all and end-all of the pathology in disease like MS, whereas it very much is in disease like psoriasis and and psoriatic arthritis. So um, indeed, another paper that we published last year in 2021, the PhD student from my lab, Eve McGinley, which was based around data that actually Lara had um, generated herself when she was in my lab as a PhD student, when we were trying to figure out what the, the, the sort of role of IL-17 and IL-23 really were. And the, the, the end um, discovery that Eva nailed finally was that IL-17 is not essential for the effector function, that is at the end stage of the process that leads to the pathology, but it's very much involved in the early stage in what's called a a priming role. So there's a sort of a feedback loop where the R17 produced by the T cell goes back and it actually recruits in other cells called neutrophils and monocytes, which make another cytokine called interleukin-1, which in turn promotes R17 from T cells. So there's this loop which involved IL-17 feeding back onto uh, from the adaptive immune system back onto the innate immune system. And that sort of explained some of the anomalies that were previously in the field. And it might suggest that um, IL-17 blocking would be useful in stopping flares, for example. So we think that the flares that happen in, in MS, the, the relapses in relapsing remitting MS, flares occur in, in psoriasis as well. And many autoimmune diseases are, are characteristic by flares, rheumatoid arthritis, another, another example. People are well for months and months 
and then suddenly they get a relapse. And um, people have various theories as to why this happens. And a very um, one that's emerging now is to do with infection. So people who get infected that have autoimmune disease, it drives this inflammatory response, which kickstarts again the inflammation um, that is partly driven by L17. It, this sort of links infection with autoimmunity. And there was a fantastic paper in Science um, last year, which linked, um, was early this year actually, linked Epstein-Barr virus infection with multiple sclerosis and showing that people who were infected with Epstein-Barr virus were 30 times more likely to get MS than people who weren't infected. Um, They didn't find the molecular mechanism for it, but it was a very strong association. So those are some of the things that sort of point towards IL-17 being a a critical, but not the only factor in in some of these autoimmune diseases. Does that make it complicated then, Kingston, because you're talking about how it might be critical in an early stage? Does that make it very hard then to use it as a treatment? Is it going to be too complex? Do we need to be looking at something else? Or do you really think that anti-IL-17 and those kind of treatments are going to be relevant in, in, in a lot of disease states going forward? Well, we know already that they're not only relevant, they're working. They're working very, very effectively. Um, antibodies that block IL-17 or its receptor or IL-23, the upstream cytokine that promotes the, the TH17 cell. That, so the, the cell that produces IL-17 T cell is called a TH17 cell. Now it's another cell called a gamma delta T cell that also produces it. So so these th- th- there is very strong evidence that blocking IL-17 in certain diseases is really critical. Now, in other diseases like and this is where it gets um, a bit murky. In in the trials in Crohn's disease and uh, patients and patients with um, ulcerative colitis, these are inflammatory bowel diseases, um, when they treated with anti-IL-17, the patients actually got worse. And that was a real surprise because everyone had predicted that IL-17 was going to work in these diseases. And it, it turns out that, that um, you know, that IL-17 is important in controlling the good bacteria that um, cause the um, inflammation. This is one of the explanations, at least. It, it's not the only one. And that the uncontrolled inflammation from the, um, the lack of IL-17 in the gut, because of it was blocked, resulted in more severe disease in the patients treated with um, the anti-IL-17 antibody. Now, it turns out that IL-23 blocking may be um, a, a more effective approach than IL-17, because IL-23 promotes not just IL-17, but a range of other um, cytokines from um, T17 and gamma-delta T-cells. So there are some diseases where IL-17 may work, and there are others where IL-23 may be better. And then there are some diseases where neither of these pathways, and, and a good example of that, maybe that effective, a good example is, is rheumatoid arthritis, because in rheumatoid arthritis, there was a lot of hope for blocking IL-17, but in fact, the clinical trials were quite disappointing. Um, but the trouble with, with rheumatoid arthritis, it's a very heterogeneous disease, and there's not a single mechanism. So it works in some patients and not in others because some patients may have a, a, a you know a different mechanism. IL-17 may be important in some and, and not in others. So um, that may explain, and, and that's why rheumatoid arthritis is a hard nut to crack. And the way forward is stratification. So stratification is is the is the is the buzzword in treating cancer now, but it's also coming in to treating autoimmune diseases, finding the patient that's going to respond to your drug before you start treating it. And that's crucial. And, you know, you don't need to do that necessarily with a with disease like psoriasis because it's a, it's not it's a more homogeneous disease. But with a disease like rheumatoid arthritis, which is very heterogeneous, you need to identify the mechanism 
the broad mechanism with biomarkers and then treat those that have a mechanism that's amenable to treatment with a particular blocking antibody or, or, or small molecule drug. Great. And um, given its role as a double-edged sword, as you say, can you talk to us a little bit about the side effects and infectious complications that come with blocking the IL-17 pathway? Yes, very great question, uh, Bianca. So the reason we have IL-17 is not to cause nasty autoimmune diseases, it's to protect us against infection. That's why the, the, the body evolved to have this cytokine. And it's very effective at, at, at um, controlling uh, fungal infections in particular. And the evidence from this is from polymorphism studies. So people that have gene deletions or mutations in the genes that code for IL-17's receptor or IL-23 are highly susceptible to the development of mucocutaneous candidiasis. So candidiasis is, is a fungal infection that is absolutely dependent on IL-17 for its control. And if you don't have IL-17, you get uncontrollable uh, candidiasis. And that is the very strong evidence of the role for IL-17 in control of fungal infections. Those patients also get diseases like um, Staphylococcus aureus and other bacterial infections where IL-17 is a crucial role. So the role of IL-17 here is twofold. Well, threefold, really. One is it recruits neutrophils. Neutrophils kill bacteria. And secondly, it promotes production of these antimicrobial peptides. These are small peptides which are the sort of the body's uh, antibiotics, really. They're, they're small molecules that can directly kill bacteria, and they're induced from epithelial cells by IL-17. And the third thing is what we call barrier function. So if you want to stop a disease from disseminating from a mucosal surface, then you need to keep the barrier in integrity. And if that barrier integrity is lost, you can get dissemination. And, if, and, and, and for example, you, you may have heard recently about about strep infections and um, disseminating strep infections. Well, you know, strep is normally, streptococcus A is normally confined to the upper respiratory tract, and, and but it can go into the lungs and worse still, it can disseminate throughout the body and cause septicemia. This is and, and meningitis, in fact. So, so, so these are these are these are potentially lethal diseases, and so barrier function in stopping the bacteria or other organism leaving the the, the the mucosal surface is critical in terms of controlling the infections. So to, to answer your question about whether we see side effects of blocking IL-17, yes, we there, there are some side effects, but it's not as dramatic as people might have predicted. People on these blocking antibodies, there's a small increase in upper respiratory tract infections, um, but it's not dramatic. And I think that it's, um, a, you know, you, ha you have to always assess risk versus benefit in any drug treatment. And I think the benefit of anti-I-17 far outweighs the risk because some of these diseases are very debilitating. Psoriatic arthritis, even psoriasis in extreme form is very debilitating, as, of course, is alkalosing spondylitis. And those diseases can be completely, uh, I won't say cured, but they can be controlled. Um, and a small number will get transient um, candida infections, which can be treated with antifungal agents. So it's not it's not a huge issue. That is one of the fascinating things about it is what you said. It's not as bad as, as we thought it was going to be, I yeah. suppose, by blocking it, which is wonderful. Now, I mean, the other thing you talked about a bit in the paper towards the end is what's coming down the line. Yeah. What is exciting to you, Kingston? What do we need to be looking out for? And what do we need to be doing in our labs around the world on this topic? 
Well, one of the things that we're trying to do is to um, make small molecule drugs that block IL-17. We're not the only ones trying to do this. There's a few labs and pharmaceutical companies trying to do this. And why would we want a small molecule rather than an antibody? A few reasons. First of all, antibodies have a long half-life, which is good, and you don't have to treat the patient very often. But you have to inject the patient. So the patient is on indefinite um, usually intravenous, sometimes intramuscular, but usually intravenous injections every three weeks, perhaps, or sometimes more often. So that's very, you know, invasive for the patient. Secondly, if something happens like a severe infection, you can't turn it off with an antibody. You have to wait for the antibody to, to, to work its way out of the system, which can take weeks. The advantage of small molecule drugs is that you can turn it off immediately because a small molecule drug is very uh, short half-life on the body. So once you stop taking it, it's, it's cleared in a, in a matter of a, a, you know, half a day. Um, and, and, and the other big advantage is, is oral use. So you can, you can pop a pill daily, probably, rather than having to have an injection every three weeks. And nearly every patient prefers to take an oral drug than have an injection. They don't need to attend the clinic. If they're going on holidays, they don't need to worry about, you know, they're going to, uh, having to inject themselves or getting someone at the other end to do it for them. And the other thing is cost. Small molecule drugs are relatively easy to make in large amounts at, at, a, at, a, at, a, at much reduced cost compared with, with biologics. And these biologics, of course, are the antibodies. So that, those are the three big, big advantages. I suppose the disadvantage of the small molecules are that um, they're not as they don't block as effectively usually as the as the as the monoclonal antibodies. The monoclonal antibodies or you know other receptor antagonists are usually very effective at blocking. But that's a double-edged sword too, because you know if you block too much, you don't um, leave enough of the cytokine to deal with infection. And some people believe that a small molecule drug, because it doesn't completely block the cytokine, may be the ideal approach because it stops the major function of the cytokine, but leaves a trickle that may be enough to control the infection. So I think what's coming down the line are small molecule drugs, but also potentially combinations. In the cancer field, combinations are where it's at right now. There's hardly a single um, treatment in cancer that's not a combination therapy, whether it be a checkpoint inhibitor or CAR T-cell or whatever with a vaccine or a chemotherapeutic agent or whatever. So in the autoimmune disease, we ha- we don't have any of these really. We've, we've, it's very rare to, to prescribe true drugs at the same time. In fact, it's probably unheard of. But there's a lot of activity in the preclinical level here. And my lab is you know, looking at this right now to seeing, for example, if we block IL-17 in, in an animal model of MS and at the same time block some other function of the autoimmune pathology, for example, you know, enhancing regulation, which is a something else that's coming down the line. So really, if I was to say, what's the ideal treatment for an autoimmune disease? I don't think it's a blocking antibody to IL-17 or IL-23. I think it's getting the immune system to reset itself so that it regulates its own pathological TH17 and, and other IL-17 secreting cells or interferon gamma secreting cells. And to do that, what you need to do is you need to get regulatory cells that are specific for the autoantigen. That's the sort of holy holy grail of autoimmunity, finding a mechanism for inducing regulatory cells that are specific for the autoantigen. So they outcompete the pathogenic cells. And the really neat thing about this is that it should be side effect free because you're only blocking 
the antigen specific, the autoantigen specific response, not the general response as you do with anti IL 17 blockers or TNF blockers or steroids, which are very sort of blunderbust anti inflammatory therapeutic approaches. So that's really where the field is going to be in 10 or 15 years' time. It sounds extremely exciting, Kingston. And I mean, you've obviously mentioned that you're working on some of this in your own lab. What else is coming down the line from the, the Kingston Mills lab? What else should we expect to see in the future? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 we're, we're, we have just have a grant application under review. I just submitted it a few, a few days ago, which is looking at how, what we call the, the innate T cells. Now that'll blow your mind. So you, you've, you've heard there's an innate immune system, there's an adaptive immune system, but we're, there's a, there's a population of T cells that have innate characteristics. And these include NK cells, innate lymphoid cells. But we've discovered that gamma delta cells have innate characteristics. And you remember some of this yourself, Lara, from the time you were in the lab. Um, IL-1 and IL-23 can promote IL-17 without the T-cell needing to engage its T-cell receptor. But we we started working on what what are called tissue-resident memory T-cells. And my lab has been working on these now for about the last five or six years in the context of infection. And these are cells that reside in tissues. And the really exciting thing about them is that there's a huge number of them in the tissues. So if you look in the lung of of a human, um, and they've they've done this on post-mortem samples on human lung, there are more T-cells in the lung of a human than there is in the entire circulation. It's similar in the skin and in other organs. There's a a stack full of T-cells. So every time you get infected in an organ, T-cells are laid down. These are tissue-resident memory cells. They go to the tissues and some of them stay there. And they're reactivated nonspecifically in an innate fashion. And by innate fashion, I mean they don't need their T-cell receptor to be activated. They're just activated by cytokines in the tissue. So when you get infected with something, and we work on Bordetella pertussis, when you get infected with Bordetella, you lay down these cells in the, and this is all in mouse models now, in the lung and also in the nasal cavity. And then if you come back with a a completely unrelated infection, and we use um, Klebsiella pneumonia, and and give the mouse a second infection, not only does it activate Klebsiella-specific T-cells, it also activates T-cells that were specific for the Bordetella. So you're, you're non-specifically stimulating these cells that are already laid down. And that gives us memory then so we can respond. That keeps the memory cells alive so that the next time we get a Bordetella infection, those cells will be there ready to respond very quickly. And that's why natural immunity induced by infection is more effective really than, than any vaccine can be because it induces them in the tissues. So what's, where is this going to take us into in autoimmunity? Our next sort of three or four years work is going to be looking at these cells in autoimmune diseases. And we know already they're there because we've found them. And other labs, have, we found them in the brain of mice that have experimental autoimmune encephalitis, the, the model for EAE that you worked on, Lara, when you were in the lab. And um, so in people with psoriasis, the, if they take skin biopsies, they can find these tissue resident memory cells as well. And we believe that these cells are crucial to... Um, prolonged disease, but also flares. So flares are when you get a relapse in MS or you get a, a, a flare in psoriasis. We think that those flares are due to reactivation of the tissue residue memory cells. And we, we think that there are two mechanisms potentially for inducing or activating these cells. And one of them is through infection. And the second is through the microbiome. So if we deplete the microbiome from a mouse by giving it broad-spectrum antibiotics and induce EAE, they don't get EAE. 
So the microbiome is absolutely required to stimulate those um, innate responses that drive the, the EAE. Similarly, if you give an infection or even a product of a pathogen called a PAMP, this is a patch, patch, pattern associated molecular pattern, so something like LPS from gram negative bacteria to a mouse that has tissue residue memory cells specific for Bordetella into the nose, you, you reactivate those tissue residue memory cells. And if you translate then to that to autoimmunity, we think that people who have autoimmune diseases and get infected with uh, infection of their upper respiratory tract, that may be enough to drive activation of um, cells, not just in the respiratory tract, but perhaps also in the central nervous system. And that's the big basis of what we're going to be working on for the next three or four years. Kingston, that is very exciting. Really, really cannot wait to see what's coming down the line from the Mills Lab. And thank you so much for being with us today. Um, And hopefully we will see really exciting stuff in the next few years. Thank you both. That was amazing. It's so great to hear what's coming down the line from Kingston's lab. The idea of innate tissue resident T cells is a really interesting one. It seems that the more we're learning about immunology, the more the lines are becoming blurred. So in terms of how we used to categorize cells and diseases in the past, I mean, we all learned about the adaptive and the innate systems and that was set in stone. It was kind of the dogma, but the further along we come, I feel like the more these seem to start blending together, it it feels like there's just so much complex interplay involved. Absolutely, Lara, I agree. And I think interleukin-17 is great at demonstrating how the immune system is all about balance. So interleukin-17, with its role in fighting infection, as well as autoimmunity, you know, if you have too much or too little, you're in trouble either way. I think the next topic we have highlights another part of the immune system where the balance is key. And with that, we're delighted to welcome Dr. Anastasia Zakaradu. Anastasia is a consultant in the Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota, with a joint appointment in the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology and Neurology. Her research field is neurological autoimmunity, primarily focusing on perineoplastic neurological disease, as well as neurological complications of cancer immunotherapy. Anastasia is a practicing clinician who also somehow manages to make time for all of this research. Anastasia, thanks for being on the show with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Anastasia, it's so lovely to meet you. I just, I suppose I wanted to start by chatting a little bit about your paper in Mayo Clinic Proceedings on Neurological Autoimmunity in the Era of Checkpoint Inhibitors. I suppose just before we delve too deeply into checkpoint inhibitors, can you tell us a little bit about perineoplastic neurological disease in general? I know that's a broad question, but if you can distill an entire subject down into a couple of minutes, can you talk to us about that? Yeah. So paraneoplastic neurological syndromes are rare to start with. So depending on the different publications, you can see different incidents, but it's really very rare. So the the idea of a paraneoplastic neurological syndrome is that it is actually a cancer antigen driven immune response. So it really they really get triggered when a non-coneural antigen, so an antigen that it's normally expressed in the nervous system, is expressed by a tumor. So this is something that we used to deal with a lot. We see a lot of paraneoplastic syndromes with small cell lung cancer, thymoma, seminoma, so tumors that are actually expressing neural antigens. Then somehow there is a bypass 
of the self-tolerance, and then we actually do have an anti-tumor immune response against specific neural antigens on the tumor that actually affects the central or the peripheral nervous system. And the bypassing of self-tolerance, there are so many things that can contribute to this. We can have like mutated neural antigens expressed by the tumors or antigens that have post-translational modifications. But the trigger, the idea of the paranoplastic neurological syndrome is really that it starts by by an anti-tumor immune response that affects the nervous system. So, as I said, they are rare syndromes and they can affect every level of the nervous system. So we can start from encephalitis, movement disorders, neuropathies, myelopathies, and a lot of the times these patients actually have multiple neurological syndromes at the same time. So this is one of the most typical presentations. For example, we have antibodies like anti-HU or ANA1 that when we find them, we know that the patients will have a very high likelihood of small cell lung cancer. And even though it's a very specific antibody, the one patient can present with encephalitis, the other with a sensory neuronopathy, and then the third one can present with all of the above and gastrointestinal dysmotility. So it's really these immune responses can affect the nervous system at all levels. I think that the main thing for these paranoplastic syndromes, it's also that there have been reports that they can actually, when you do have a paranoplastic syndrome, you might have a better cancer outcome. Or if you have the presence of antibodies against neural antigens, you might have a better cancer outcome. And this was studied in small cell lung cancer. So I think that that gives us a little bit of an insight of how good an immune response against the tumor can be for your overall cancer outcome. And that links very well with the immune checkpoint inhibitors. That's really interesting. So it's part of the immune response to the cancer, getting these paraneoplastic neurological syndromes. So can you comment a little bit more about the difference between antibodies targeting antigens in the cell intracellularly versus on the cell surface? So... What we are very lucky to be able to detect actually in some of the patients with paraneoplastic neurological syndromes are neural autoantibodies. So the neural autoantibodies are much easier to detect than say specific T cells, for example. And then we do have antibodies that have started to be Prescribed. I think the first one was in the 1960s, and it was a striational antibodies for myasthenia gravis that we then actually realized that it's not the pathogenic antibody. But we have antibodies that we discover every year now for these paranoplastic neurological syndromes. And then we generally group them in two different categories. The one is antibodies targeting synapses. And these are the antibodies that can target the water channels or receptors in the cell surface surface or proteins that they are associated with proteins in the cell surface. And in general, we consider these antibodies to have pathogenic potential. Why? Because they can actually access the target. And we have multiple examples of that, GABA-A antibodies, GABA-B, NMDA, like all of these uh, antibodies targeting the specific neural antigens, they can be pathogenic. And then how pathogenic this actually uh, changes between diseases. And a lot of it is driven actually by the subclass of the antibody that we are dealing with. So for example, when you think about alcoporin 4 autoimmunity, and this is rarely paraneoplastic, but it's a very good example of things that we have looked into, you can see that these antibodies are pathogenic and they can affect 
they can actually be pathogenic in multiple ways, meaning they activate complement, they actually lead to acoporin-4 internalization, they actually lead to antibody-dependent cytotoxicity, and in addition to that, they disrupt the function. So one kind of like antibody category, and you have all the potential pathogenic effects. On the other side, though, you have the antibodies that are targeting intracellular targets. And these are, for example, the ANA1 or anti-HU antibody. So these antibodies, they, how we think about this now is that they don't have access to the target, so they do not have pathogenic potential, and they are biomarkers of the cytotoxic T-cell response of the same specificity. There is some research in the paranoplastic neurological syndromes emerging about possible pathogenic potential of these uh, antibodies, but I think that this will need to actually be investigated further because it is a little bit, if you look at all the other like biological examples, it is a little bit more difficult for me to conceive that they do have pathogenic potential. So the ones that they are targeting intracellular uh, antigens, so where the cytotoxic T cells are essentially the effectors of the immune response, well, in these diseases, by the time we often see the patients, there is a lot of damage that has been done. So they are much more difficult to treat and it's much more difficult for us to reverse the damage that was already done. While on the other side, when you have the pathogenic antibodies, when we see these patients, we use plasma exchange, B-cell depleting therapies, and we are much more efficient in treating them, especially the ones that do not actually act. The pathogenicity is not via complement um, dependent cytotoxicity because most of the internalization or most of the uh, interrupting, interrupting the function, they are actually reversible. So you take the antibodies away and then the patients do get better. That's fascinating. And I suppose I wanted to just move on to something you've already alluded to, which is checkpoint inhibitors. I'm wondering what's changed in neurological autoimmunity in recent years with the advent of checkpoint inhibitors being used, I suppose, increasingly frequently for cancer treatment. So the immune checkpoint inhibitors for me, the first time that I read about them, I was so excited because in patients like you are actually already using the anti-tumor immune responses that we have been seeing in clinic and you are actually enhancing them so that you can have a better outcome for the patient's tumor. So the paranoplastic neurological syndromes were actually the example back before we even used these immune checkpoint inhibitors of how an immune response can help with the cancer itself. So I think that the last time I checked the numbers, it was something like more than 230,000 patients in the United States can actually are qualified to get immune checkpoint inhibitors. And then even if like there are so many molecules that are out there now. So what I keep on saying when I see a patient in clinic and what I also discuss with my fellows is that there is not only three or four checkpoint inhibitors that you will remember. Every time you see a patient with cancer that actually has a list of medications that you don't recognize, look up the mechanism because there are every year new checkpoint inhibitor molecules that come through. So I'm not going to discuss how they work. Essentially, it's enhancing anti-tumor immune responses. But what I find very fascinating is how this interacts with the 
neurological autoimmunity. So when you look at neurological autoimmunity, you actually have your classic paraneoplastic neurological syndromes. And there were some initial reports that we do have an increase in the frequency of classic paraneoplastic neurological syndromes. And this came from the French Center where they saw an increase of MAT2 antibody positive patients, which are very rare. And then most of them were associated with immune checkpoint inhibitors. I think that the paraneoplastic syndromes are very interesting. And then we learned more and we are still learning even more because in the initial uh, indications for checkpoint inhibitors, it was melanoma, renal cell carcinoma. So cancers that you don't see spontaneously associating with neurological autoimmunity a lot. But now we're also treating small cell lung cancer with immune checkpoint inhibitors. So we actually see our classic paraneoplastic neurological syndromes that we normally use to see them first and find the cancer after. Now we see patients that have the cancer, small cell lung cancer, they are treated with checkpoint inhibitors, and we see these paranoplastic neurological syndromes. And I'm not going to spend time, but there is a great, the best animal model for me for immune checkpoint inhibitor-related paranoplastic autoimmunity. It's a neurological animal model which of cerebellar ataxia, and I'm happy to provide the reference after. In addition to these paraneoplastic neurological syndromes that we see that they are increasing in frequency and they seem to be more difficult to treat and they might even have worse outcomes, I say might because the reports are very small than the spontaneous paraneoplastic syndromes, then we have these other diseases that we don't fully comprehend. For example, we do have potentiation of pre-existing immune responses. And this we know very well. There are reports in the literature, patients that have an, a radiological isolated syndrome in the MRI, they got immune checkpoint inhibitors and they had their first multiple sclerosis relapse. So these are not cancer antigen-driven immune responses. They are not paraneoplastic if we use the term as cancer antigen driven, they are really pre-existing immune responses that go uh, worse. And then you have another category, which is the one that we need to understand a little bit more. For example, the immune-related myositis. So these are diseases, the patients that will have, like they'll get checkpoint inhibitors and then they present with this myositis, which is one of the manifestations, neurological manifestations that we see in clinic most, even though they are very rare in comparison to other systemic manifestations. And these ones are not very clear because you see the patients, when you see them first, you say, oh, myasthenia, but the patients do not really have myasthenia. So they really have a myositis, so it really affects the muscles, but in a phenotype that is very different than the phenotype of saying the autoimmune necrotizing myopathies with HMGCR antibodies or SRP antibodies. So very different clinical presentation, but very consistent because you see it in most of the patients. And these are the patients that we need to understand a little bit more how these responses are actually driven. Okay, so not knowing completely about how these responses are driven, does that make the treatment of these more challenging? And you say in your paper how treatment should be individualized. Can you expand more upon that? Mm -hmm. So I think that more than... That was a review that we wrote early on, but the more we see patients, the more actually adapt the way we treat them. And then the problem with neurological patients is it's rare. So I don't think that you will ever be able to have a prospective study of how best to treat them. So it will have to come from retrospective studies or maybe like open label studies to the future. So 
the recommendations always said up front, you start with steroids. And these were the recommendations since early on. And this is kind of the same theme that you will see with all of them all of the complications, regardless of what they affect. The question is, do you stop or you do not stop the immune checkpoint inhibitor? In most of the neurological patients that will come to a neurology consultant, you stop because they are severe enough. Because you don't stop the immune checkpoint inhibitor when they have a little bit like grade one complications, a little bit of tingling in the feet, a little bit of headache. But let's be honest, when you see them in clinic in neurology, they have more than that. And then uh, the idea is that you start with steroids, but the latest recommendations open the door in using IVAG in presentations, for example, like Guillain-Barrem. Uh, there are some systematic reviews that argue that if you use IVAG or plasma exchange in addition to the steroids in myasthenia-like presentations, you have better outcomes. So I think this very strict thing that we set up front, steroids first, we, we change it a little bit as time goes by. In my own practice, which again, there are everybody adapts with what they actually know. The patients that will get severe disease with like myositis or they will get steroids, but they will also probably get plasma exchange if they're severely affected or IVAG. What I think changes, and I think the people that we see these patients, we agree on this, is what happens in the patients that present with a classic paraneoplastic syndrome, like with the ANA1 or anti-HU antibodies, with the limbic encephalitis or the sensory neuronopathy that has already wiped out all the sensory ganglia and the patient cannot walk. So these patients, yes, will start with steroids, but I think that we will all kind of escalate quickly to what we will call second line agents, cyclophosphamide will be up front. But even there, we still don't know that we are actually making a huge difference. My experience has been that some of these patients are get, really need more immunotherapy, but I think that we should be in a spot in order to adapt the treatment to every patient. For example, TNF-alpha inhibitors are used a lot for systemic complications of immune-related, of immune checkpoint inhibitors. I think if we have sarcoid-like reactions, this would be a medication that we use. Or for example, for me, like there was a case report that come, came from France, and these are all case reports or case series, but they had a myelopathy. They found elevated IL-6, so they used tocilizumab, and they actually actually use the JAK inhibitor as well for the downstream effects. So, and the patient did get better. So I think that we still have a lot to learn on how we treat them. The most important is to recognize early, start with steroids up front, and then I think for me, adapt depending on what you see. Whomever sees a patient with an MDA receptor antibodies, I think it makes sense if they don't get quickly better to use a B-cell depleting therapy because we know that it works in this disease. Do you know, it's really interesting because you're saying, obviously, the decision is, do we stop the checkpoint inhibitor or do we not? And as you mentioned, obviously, you do stop it in, in most patients. I'm wondering, though, have you ever found patients that you're able to reintroduce the checkpoint inhibitor down the line? Mm-hmm. And that's actually the one of the main questions that we still need to answer. And I think that we have a lot of data that come from systemic complications where they reintroduce the immune checkpoint inhibitors easily with low-grade complications. But neurological complications 
are mostly high grade and you will see little data from case series here and there, but there is not a clear recommendation. So essentially, first is the recommendations. The recommendation says if you have grade one, you can restart. If you have grade two that you can actually control with 10 milligrams of prednisone or less, you can restart. If you have grade three or four, it's a, on a case-by-case -case basis. Practically, most neurological are three or four, so it's on a case-by-case -case basis. What our experience here has been is that there are some patients that we easily restarted and they had no complications. And these are the patients with meningoencephalitis, so antibody negative, mainly meningeal presentation, where I don't suspect that these are really paraneoplastic syndromes, if I can say them like that, and then a little bit of steroids, these patients go very easily better. And then we restarted, I think we had four patients and none of them had a, like a reappearance of their symptoms. Then the second category is the other ones that the more difficult ones, like the myopathies, for example. A myopathy like the immune checkpoint inhibitor myopathies, they're often associated with cardiomyopathy. If you have cardiomyopathy, chances are that you will not find an oncologist that will restart an immune checkpoint inhibitor. But like there are some myopathies in the literature that were controlled with steroids and then you they restarted the immune checkpoint inhibitors and they didn't have relapses. In our experience here, we had two patients that relapsed again, and then one that relapsed but had a colitis instead of a myopathy, but they, they did have severe relapses. And then the last one are the more paraneoplastic cases, and this is very difficult to actually give a solid recommendation about restarting. We did have a, a CRIMP-5 positive myelopathy patients with small cell lung cancer that unfortunately after she got better, she restarted the immune checkpoint inhibitors because of her cancer and she really got worse. I think for the paraneoplastic cases, and we do have some data as well for pre-existing paraneoplastic diseases that were treated with immune checkpoint inhibitors and they went they didn't go well, they really neurologically went worse, that we need to be a little bit more careful. There are times that I will discuss with the oncologist and I will kind of lay this out there and say, you know, I think that there's a high risk of relapse and they, these are very difficult to treat. But if we have no other option, we have no other option. But it's often that the oncologist or the patient would really not want to go forward in this last category. So I'm I'm very happy to suggest retreatment on the, the first part that I said with a classic paraneoplastic high-risk antibodies or high-risk phenotypes. I think it's a little bit more difficult. It's so interesting. And just to ask you very briefly, what is in store for neurological autoimmunity and checkpoint inhibitors? If you had to pick, say, one thing you think future researchers should focus on, what would it be? Something that I am very passionate about is actually trying to predict the patients that will do will have neurological immune related adverse events or any other of related adverse events with uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors. And we do have a little bit of data suggesting that in tu can tumors, in cancers like small cell or thymoma, like if we do find neural antibodies before, even in asymptomatic patients, maybe these are the patients that they are at higher risk of relapse. So if you can stratify your patients before you put them on immune checkpoint inhibitors, which have high risk or low risk of neurological complications. And then if you also can stratify who have high risk for 
uh, high risk for severe disease versus non-severe disease or easily treatable or not, I think that it will change a lot the, the way that we treat these patients because there are so many treatments now that oncology has for different types of malignancies. I think that we would be in a much better spot. So there are tons of things that we should focus on, but if I had to choose one, predicting would be my, my thing. That is great. Thank you so much, Anastasia, for being on the show today and talking to us. Thank you both for having me and good luck with your show. Gosh, that, that was brilliant, Lara. I learned so much. Um, the idea of checkpoint inhibitors in general, I think, is one of the greatest discoveries of modern science. I love the idea of using someone's own immune system to fight the cancer. And these drugs are being used increasingly frequently. So we're going to see the immune-related adverse events more and more commonly. So I think it's really important that immunologists are aware of them. No, absolutely. And I suppose that's really key. You know, it feels like it's blending neurology and immunology, but but immunologists absolutely need to know about these side effects. And I suppose the other thing that I found really interesting was the idea that in the future, we might be able to predict which patients would be more likely to develop these neurological autoimmunity issues with checkpoint inhibitors. I think if we knew which patients were going to be more at risk, then we could maybe watch them more closely, bring them back to clinic more frequently, or even get them linked in with neurology sooner rather than later. And potentially they may have much better outcomes as a result. That's true. It's all very exciting. The future is exciting. So I guess that brings our first episode to an end. But I feel like we've talked a lot about immunology and we haven't talked about tea at all. So do you want to tell us, Lara, your most controversial tea opinion? Bianca, I feel like maybe you are tea shaming me right now. I'm not sure that I'm ready to tell the world my most controversial tea opinion. But now that you've asked, I probably should do it. I am a milk fiend. So every time I have tea, I probably fill the cup maybe half full with tea. And I'd say half full with milk, which I know oh. people hate. I know it's, oh, I know people are not into that at all. All right. Now that you've gotten me to give this one away, <laughs> let me see what you've got in store. Okay. Give me your best tea related fact. Ooh, tea fact. Besides that you shouldn't fill your mug halfway with tea <laughs> with milk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, okay, a tea fact for you is that Ireland is actually number two in the world when it comes to tea consumption per capita. Mm, what's number one? Number one is Turkey. See, I feel like that's the fact. I feel like number two isn't the fact. But yeah, okay. <laughs> you're, you're cheating us out of a fact here. But no, in fairness, that I absolutely did not know that about Ireland or Turkey. I already actually thought that I'd learned enough for one day, but my brain just keeps on expanding with more knowledge. I guess some bits are maybe a little bit less useful than others. <laughs> Okay, I suppose tea facts aside, it's been amazing to learn so much today, not only about what we already know about immunology, but where the field is potentially going in the future. Absolutely. And look, if you want to get in touch with us with comments, questions, anything you wanted to talk to us about the show, please email us. So we're on immunitypodcast at gmail.com. So don't forget it's immunity, I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A. Or you can tweet us. We are at immunotea. Don't forget that's (laughs) T-E-A. So finally, we'd like to thank our guests today, Professor Kingston Mills and Professor Anastasia Zakeridou. And also thank you to our editor, Aidan McKelvey. And finally, thank you so much to you the listener and we'll chat to you again next month goodbye for now